Prestige heads and welcome to your weekly American Prestige. I'm Danny Bessner here as always with Derek Davison. And we're going to give an update on Ukraine during our interview this week with the Quincy Institute's Anatole Levin. So we're not going to talk about that in the news segment, but there's plenty of Ukraine info coming your way. Uh, well, uh, we, we'll probably talk a little bit about it obliquely, yeah, but not directly. Yes, exactly, Derek. Wow, way to undermine me in front of everyone. Yes. I, 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 well, you love I don't doing want that. people to be like, I don't want people to be, you know, too confused here, but th- there yes. will be a little bit of something tangentially related. Yes. Derek, never disagree with me in public <laughs> again. Um, so there's actually been a, a lot of developments around the world this week, which perhaps the most important being the recent election in the Republic of Korea, better known as South Korea. So Derek, why don't you let us know what's going on there? And also everyone should know we have an episode coming in the next few weeks with the journalist E. Tammy Kim, who is a specialist on Korean politics, where we do talk a little bit about the election that just happened. So Derek, let us know yes, what's going on in Korea. Yes, recorded during the election, so it'll be a little bit little bit out of it's date. It's okay. They'll learn a lot. People will you'll learn, learn something about how the election went. Uh, so, to make a long story short, uh, the conservative Yoon Suk-yeol, I hope I'm not butchering that too badly, of the People's Power Party won Wednesday's presidential election. Narrowly, the last time I checked the outcome, although I have to confess, I guess he could have won all the like last 5% of the vote and blown out uh, a bigger lead. But uh, it was pretty narrow last I checked. He defeated the nominee of the Democratic Party, which is the current ruling party of incumbent Moon Jae-in. He defeated uh, that guy, Lee Jae-myung, who slightly actually outperformed, it seems like, pre-election polling, but uh, was not enough to win. I mean, we can, I guess, try to speculate about what this means for South Korea. I'm, I'm sort of hesitant because South Korean politics are not my bag. But certainly, I mean, you, you know, it's a return to a more conservative, pro-business type of a leadership. What I would say from the U.S. perspective and from the sort of foreign policy perspective, the big outcome of this is likely to be a more hostile, basically back to the pre-moon status quo in terms of South Korean relations with North Korea, which uh, Moon Jae-in kind of rooted his presidency a fair amount in the idea that he could reach out to North Korea, that he could talk to Kim Jong-un, that he could achieve intra-Korean dialogue or inter-Korean dialogue. That never fully panned out. There was a window there when, you know, of course, Donald Trump and Kim Jong-un were talking to one another, but Moon was almost completely cut out of that bromance there. And he was never really able to establish a sort of independent policy toward North Korea, independent of Washington. Yoon is likely to to return to, as I say, the sort of norm in South Korea, which is to let the United States take the lead, which means, generally speaking, a more hostile relationship with North Korea, more militarized, more kind of adversarial. So that, I would say, is the, the big takeaway from this for the perspective of the American prestige audience. 
Yeah, and it's also going to have um, larger domestic ramifications, and we'll probably try to get Tammy or another specialist in South Korea to come on in the next month or two to discuss what's going on. But from foreign policy, it does seem like a return to more militant foreign policy is what's going to happen. So, Derek, why don't we turn now to oil and the world's oil markets and how they have been responding to uh, Putin's invasion of Ukraine? Yeah, so this is where we're kind of tangentially at least talking about Ukraine because one of the big effects has been a massive spike in global oil prices. I'm going to look and see what it is today. So Brent crude is down a little bit today, actually, around $110 per barrel. That's, you know, much higher than it was. It was around in the 90s, I think, uh, high 80s to, to low 90s prior to the Russian invasion has skyrocketed since then uh, because of the invasion itself and the uncertainty that that creates for shipping and because of Western sanctions, uh, which haven't directly touched Russia's energy sector, but they've touched banks. There have been major sanctions on Russian banks. There is the threat of potential sanctions against the Russian energy sector. The Biden administration has talked about banning Russian oil, which could spike gasoline prices in the United States a little bit. So this is a a very volatile market right now. And that's led to some interesting developments, I think, outside of Russia in terms of things that the United States has been doing to try and find alternative oil sources to to get more supply on the market and bring prices down. Of course, people yeah, who are in the, the United pod, States. Juan Guaido is, is not happy right now. Is <laughs> yeah, he, I would imagine. Uh, I would imagine he's not. So, I mean, anybody who's in the U.S. or if you follow U.S. politics, you'll know that there is a midterm election coming up in November. The Democratic Party is going to get rinsed, most likely. But the question is, by how much? And if gas prices are 4 to $5 a gallon at the pump or more, they're going to get rinsed really badly. Polling indicates that Americans are, you know, in the afterglow of the Russian invasion, that that Americans are saying we want to sanction more sanctions, sanction the Russian, you know, economy. And we don't care if that leads to higher gas prices, but they're going to, American voters will forget that in November if they're paying a lot of money at the pump and if food prices have gone up drastically because of high fuel prices. So that's not polling on which I think the Biden administration or the Democrats can rely. So there have been, as you suggested, uh, Danny, there's been an outreach, kind of sudden outreach over the weekend to Venezuela, to Nicolas Maduro's government. It's unclear exactly what was talked about, but there was a very high level or relatively high level for the United States and Venezuela delegation that went to Caracas to hold talks with Maduro and his administration. In the wake of that, we haven't seen any movement on sanctions yet, but the Venezuelan government has released two uh, U.S. nationals who were who was holding in custody. One of them is a former, I guess, I don't know, I mean, he was in jail, I don't know what that means for his uh, employment status, but a senior executive at Citgo who was one of six senior Citgo executives arrested in Venezuela on corruption allegations back in 2017. He's been released, and then there's a second person who I had not been aware of. The reporting has been there's like these nine, there's nine U.S. nationals or residents who are in custody. This is, this guy was not on that list. Uh, His name is Jorge Alberto Fernandez. He apparently was arrested last year for bringing a drone with him across the border from Colombia and was charged with terrorism. So he's been released. Both of these 
obviously goodwill gestures from Maduro to the Biden administration, but it remains to be seen whether that's going to lead to any movement on sanctions. Venezuela is one of a handful of countries that could, you know, sort of on its own really affect global oil prices by pumping, you know, has a lot more capacity that it could be pumping more oil onto the market. Another is Iran. Of course, people who listen to this podcast will know there have been uh, ongoing negotiations about reviving the 2015 Iran nuclear deal, which would lead to the U.S. lifting sanctions on Iranian oil exports and could lead to a significantly higher amount of Iranian oil getting to market. Again, you know, maybe driving down prices. Those talks are supposedly, if you, you know, talk to any of the diplomats involved, supposedly in the final stages. They've been in the final stages now for like two, three weeks, which indicates to me that it's not really as final as everybody's suggesting. This week, the Russians introduced a monkey wrench into the works by demanding basically that any transactions, any interactions, commercial or otherwise, that they have with Iran, once the sanctions are lifted, be protected or exempted from sanctions having to do with Ukraine. That's a huge complication. It's likely not a step that the United States or European participants in the the nuclear deal would be willing to take. Even the Iranians, who are normally on good terms with Russia, suggested that this was a somewhat irresponsible thing for the Russians to do. The lead Iranian negotiator, Ali Bagheri Khani, left Vienna uh, abruptly on Monday, which seemed like bad news. Maybe he was going back to Tehran to discuss this new Russian demand. It's unclear. He didn't really say why he left. He returned on Wednesday, which is potentially a good sign. Maybe they are really close to an agreement. It's hard to know without knowing why he left in the first place. But there is this new complication there from Russia. The third element of this, our good friends and friends of this podcast, certainly uh, Mohammed bin Salman, the crown prince of Saudi Arabia, and Mohammed bin Zayed, the crown prince of Abu Dhabi, two other countries that could single-handedly bring down global oil prices. The Biden administration has been asking for a meeting. It's been trying to get phone calls between these two men and Joe Biden himself. And they've both basically told the United States to get bent. So neither one of them seems inclined to come to the rescue here. This raises all sorts of questions about the oil for security bargain, which is the U.S. kind of deal with the devil with the Gulf Arabs. If they're not going to make good with the oil, why should the United States make good with the security is my take on this. But there was a statement from the UAE's ambassador to the United States, Yusuf Al-Taiba, Uh, who's quite famous for uh, being a a mover and shaker in D.C., suggesting that the Emiratis might be open to the idea of increasing global oil production, or at least increasing their oil production. The UAE walked that back a little bit on Thursday to say that they're committed to staying within the bounds of whatever the OPEC Plus group agrees in terms of global oil production. The OPEC Plus is more or less controlled by the Saudis and the Russians, and the Russians are going to be uninclined or disinclined, rather, to do anything to alleviate global oil prices at this point, I think. So the chances of anybody in that group pumping more oil to save the Biden administration's political bacon uh, seem slim. 
kind of ironic that, you know, the oil for security thing is just falling absolutely flat on its face during the moment when the United uh, States is calling in its favor. Yes. The demands seem to be from from the Saudis and the Emiratis. It's uh, Yemen, right? Seem more to be that the United States provide more support for Yemen, which is absurd. The United States never stopped supporting the war in Yemen. I'm not sure uh, what else they could demand. But I think also there is some payback here for some of the comments that Biden made during the campaign uh, about right. Mohammed bin Salman and talking about the Saudis and turn, making them a pariah state and some of the very harsh rhetoric that he's done absolutely nothing to act practically follow up on as president. Nevertheless, this is sort of like a, you know, a payback moment for them. Mohammed bin Salman may also want some sort of immunities involved in some, or he's been named in some lawsuits in the United States that are embarrassing for him. And I'm, you know, potentially, I guess, could cost him money. That seems like a long shot, but he may want protection in some sense from that as well. It's hard to know. But yeah, as you say, the bargain here has always been oil for security. And if there's not going to be any oil forthcoming, then maybe it's time to rethink that bargain. And Derek, I can only imagine that the leaders of Western governments have taken this opportunity to really rethink their fossil fuel consumption and have begun to make serious investments in green energy, or has that not happened? <laughs> so um, there have been there there is a a European Union plan now being kicked around to cut two-thirds of their natural gas imports from Russia within the year. That is obviously not going to rely mostly or even at all really on renewables because to build out the kind of infrastructure that that would take is is just beyond really you know the, the bounds of realism so in the short term at least uh, no you're gonna you're gonna find a lot of kind of scrambling around for alternate suppliers now of course everybody you know talks a big game at times like this and Joe Biden has said this and European leaders have said this uh, every time there's an energy crunch you know the real lesson here is we have to focus on renewables. We have to go green and then Russia wouldn't have this power over us or then Iran or whomever the enemy du jour is wouldn't have this power over us. And of course, it never happens. The crisis abates and, and nobody does anything. So I, I, I'm uh, skeptical. Yeah, so am I. Really good uh, foresight among our leaders. Uh, so why don't we turn what's going to what's going to be our last uh, topic today? As Derek told me before we started recording, a new ISIS guy quote just dropped. Unquote. Uh, so Derek, yeah, why don't new, you tell me uh, uh, what's going on with uh, ISIS? So as people presumably know, friend of the podcast Abu Ibrahim uh, Al Hashimi Al Qureshi, the former uh, caliph, I guess leader of Islamic State, died under not entirely clear circumstances during a U.S. raid in northwestern Syria last month. Islamic State just today, Thursday, March 10th, announced or sort of confirmed his death via its online channels and announced the appointment of a new leader, Abu al-Hassan al-Hashimi al-Qureshi. I, I don't know who that is. I'm not sure anybody at this point knows who that is. Every time one of these folks is elevated to the position of leader or caliph or whatever they're calling themselves these days, they take a nom de guerre. 
And this one is clearly a nom de guerre. The al-Hashmi al-Qureshi is a formula. It, it simply says this person is part of the extended family of the Prophet Muhammad. Yeah, uh, the Quraysh were like the rulers. Is eligible. In, uh, the, the, uh, Hashim, the Hashim yeah. clan was Muhammad's clan within the Quraysh tribe, which was the tribe that dominated Mecca. And, and you know, it, it just signifies that they're generally speaking related in some way to yeah, Muhammad. Really, it's probably fake, you know, genealogies are, are put together all the time that are fraudulently done. And just claiming it as a sort of formula to say this person is qualified in that sense to be the leader of this caliphate such as it is. But I'm not sure who this this person is beyond that other than this, this nom de guerre that they've announced. Well, why don't we end there because we have a long and complicated discussion with Anatole Levin. Everyone, thank you as always for listening. Please like and subscribe, send to your friends, et cetera, et cetera. And Derek, thank you as always for your perspicacious view of international affairs. <laughs> well, I'm happy to help. And thanks, Danny. And thanks to all of you. Hello, American Prestige listeners. It's Derek. Uh, I'm joined, as always, by Danny Bessner, my co-host. And we're very lucky at this uh, critical time here, about two weeks into the Russian invasion (laughs) of Ukraine. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, With uh, no end in sight, really, there were uh, peace talks uh, earlier today, high-level ones that seem to have uh, gone nowhere. Uh, So no end in sight to that conflict. We're very grateful uh, to be joined by Anatole Levin, a uh, returning, returning champion, senior <laughs> research fellow on Russia and Europe at the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft. And um, Anatole has been writing some excellent stuff about the roots of this conflict, some very sensible analyses of, of what caused it, as well as sharing some ideas about realistic, I think, way to maybe negotiate a way out of this conflict. So, Anatole, thank you very much for being on the program. It's a pleasure. Thank you for asking me. So, why don't we start with your sort of overview and feel free to take us, you know, as far back historically as you you feel is necessary and to as many kind of uh, places as you feel we need to go to to understand why this is happening, why these tensions between Russia and Ukraine have developed the role that the United States and the West have played in causing, I think, a great deal of those tensions and sort of just the the background to help people understand why things are happening, why this, this invasion happened. Uh, well, um, it's a long story. <laughs> we have time. We have time. Do you have Do you have twelve hundred years? <laughs> so it began in Kiev and Rus, <laughs> as we've been saying. Yes, as we've been saying. Yeah, because I I think there are two sides to this. You know, one is actually pretty comprehensible in American terms. You know, it does resemble the Monroe Doctrine. You have a great power, or at least a country that thinks of itself as a great power, which is absolutely opposed to having what it sees as a hostile military alliance, taking over the biggest country on its borders, and turning that country against Russia. That, you know, is something which should be understandable to everybody in the American establishment. And of course, while America in more recent years has not itself invaded countries in Central America to prevent them becoming 
Soviet allies. It's done just about everything short of that in terms of the kind of regimes it supported, the proxy forces it supported, and so on. So that's the, the, the first element. But what adds an extra element of call it irrationality or nationalism or ruthlessness or recklessness or all of these things, uh, is that Ukraine for Russia is also of tremendous cultural, historical, ethnic importance. Uh, and there you, yes, I mean, you have to go back 1200 years to the, the, the foundation of the Russian state in Kiev, which is now the capital of Ukraine. And two things. I mean, one is this this very widespread Russian feeling that somehow, well, in a benign sense, Ukrainians and Russians are closely related people, in a malignant sense that Ukraine should always be subject to Russia. And then, of course, there are also objective factors here. There, there is the factor that one important strain, though now a minority strain in the Ukrainian tradition, has always itself identified with Russia. I mean, in my book on the, the subject, I compared this to Scotland, or a mixture of Scotland and Ireland, whereby you have some Ukrainians who have always been bitterly opposed to Russia, others who actually profited from the Russian Empire and then the Soviet Union, and rose to the highest, sorry, the highest positions in those states. And of course, in, in consequence of this historical relationship, you also have deep personal connections, many, many intermarriages. A large part of the Russian elite has Ukrainian names because so many Ukrainians moved to Russia. A large part of Siberia was settled by Ukrainians. On the other hand, 20% of the Ukrainian population considers itself ethnic Russian, and about a third speak Russian as their first language. So, firstly, you know, Ukraine is absolutely vital to Russia's sense of itself as a great power, and of the Russian language and culture as something which extends beyond Russia's borders. On the other hand, and I think this is absolutely critical to what has obviously been, you know, both a crime but also an appalling mistake by Putin and his regime in invading Ukraine, the Russians ha have this feeling that uh, the great majority of Ukrainians really love them at heart. And therefore, that if Russia invaded Ukraine, many Ukrainians would, to use the immortal uh, American phrase from Iraq, greet the Russian army with flowers. And uh, that meant that they were, as we now see, uh, you know, just extremely badly prepared for this war. So, yes, I mean, there are what you might call rational and universal strategic interests involved, but there are also, and this is very clear if you listen to Putin's speeches, there are deep emotional nationalist elements involved, which of course have a, a, an appalling historical tendency to produce crazy behavior. I just have a quick question, a little bit of maybe even a technical question is, could you maybe just articulate the relationship between Ukraine and Russia when both were governed by the Soviet Union? Because, um, correct me if I'm wrong, Brezhnev was Ukrainian himself. Uh, Khrushchev had like a, an emotional connection to Ukraine. And given that Putin is such a product of the late Cold War, I think it might be useful just to understand that relationship that he grew up with. Right. And also yes. the fact that he's like openly blamed the Soviets for creating Ukraine, basically. I mean, the, in his speeches, he's been very critical of Lenin and Soviet leaders for 
making a country where he, in his opinion, one, you know, essentially doesn't exist. Yes, I mean, that's an old Russian nationalist line going back to before the revolution. You know, Ukraine was one of the Soviet republics, the biggest one after Russia. And on the one hand, the Ukrainian Soviet Republic did develop a certain kind of Soviet Ukrainian identity. And yes, I mean, Ukrainians rose to very high positions in the Soviet state. But of course, I mean, on the other hand, there were uh, terrible atrocities committed in Ukraine, notably the man-made famine. Although turning this into a Russian anti-Ukrainian move is, I think, a lie frankly, and rather an evil lie, because it promotes... That's the end Applebound argument, essentially, right? Exactly. But the thing is that this was certainly an appalling Stalinist crime. But, I mean, one should remember that among the other people who suffered terribly were the Cossack areas of southern Russia, because they had fought against the communists in the Russian Civil War, and Kazakhstan, not so much because of Kazakh resistance, but because of the nature of the Kazakh pastoral economy. So turning this into a kind of Russian genocide against Ukraine is wrong. Oh, also, by the way, there is no evidence that I know of that within Ukraine, Ukrainian farmers in southern Ukraine suffered worse than ethnic Russian farmers, of whom there are a great many in southern Ukraine, Bulgarians, Jews, or, or others. I mean, Stalin was not discriminating in his determination to destroy every potential rival or enemy. That included, of course, many non-Russian peoples, but it also included Russians themselves. Maybe since we're still in the historical context, before we get to things like NATO expansion and the Maidan protests and more recent events, maybe you could talk a bit about this denazification argument that the Russians have put forward as one of the justifications for invading. I mean, Ukraine has a complicated history on this front, and yet I sort of view this as a canard in the sense that even if you grant the, the sort of argument that Ukraine is rife with Nazi sentiment and that this is a, a huge political problem, and I'd like you to, you know, comment on that, but invading is the worst possible way to deal with it. I mean, it only strengthens the more extreme forces in Ukraine. So um, can you sort of unpack that claim a little bit and kind of give us a grounded take on it, I guess, is what I'm asking. Sure. Well, I think this is a classic example of where the Russians have certain elements of a legitimate case, which they have spoiled by absolutely grotesque exaggerations and lies. Now, the elements of a genuine case are that, especially since 2014, certain extreme right-wing nationalist groups in Ukraine, the Svoboda Party, the Azov paramilitary force, have gained an influence, especially in the armed forces, disproportionate to their electoral support within Ukraine. And that's basically because of their street power. You know, one has seen that in other similar cases as well. And it's quite true that these forces have fascistic antecedents in the Second World War. They have a very strong anti-Semitic tradition. They are, by the way, bitterly hostile to gays or to LGBTQ in their attitudes and propaganda. I was listening to a, a gay activist in, in Ukraine talking bitterly about feeling themselves to be caught between 
two fires, you know, the Russian regime with its hatred of gays and the Ukrainian extremists. But these forces were far, far away from controlling Ukraine. And as President Zelensky has pointed out, it is hardly likely that a Nazi government in Ukraine would be headed by a Russian Jew, which is what he is. Now, there is another Russian case, uh, which I think does, once again, have some basic legitimacy, which is that especially over the past couple of years, the Ukrainian state and parliament have introduced a number of laws which are extremely discriminatory against the Russian language in Ukraine, which once again is spoken by getting uh, up to a third of the population, 20% of the population considers itself Russian. And these laws would really drive Russian out of public life if they were implemented, which of course they went largely, but you know, it, it, it moves towards the abolition of Russian in higher education, in service industries, on television and in the media, in cultural affairs. So this is seriously discriminatory. But once again, I mean, here, everyone is now throwing away around the term genocide. Putin talked absurdly, grotesquely about Ukrainian genocide. Now, of course, the civilian losses as a result of the Russian invasion, they're being called genocide by the Ukrainians and in the West. I mean, this, this term is, is frankly losing all serious content. And I have to say as well that using it in this way, whether by Russia or in the West, is a real insult to the, the victims of true genocides, you know, the Jewish Holocaust, the Rwandan genocide, and so forth. You know, the shelling, whether deliberate or accidental, of civilian areas is not genocide. If it were, then uh, American presidents would certainly be in the dock as well. Let's then come forward a little bit, because the genocide claim comes out of the conflict in the Donbass, which has been frozen in place for you know the last, or had been frozen in place for nearly eight years at this point. And that grows out of some of the more recent historical context for this, NATO expansion in the 90s. And I view this on, I think, at least two tracks, and maybe you can you know sort of take them in turn. But one is... The expansion of NATO into Eastern Europe, the feeling on the Russian side that this is a threat, that this is a potential national security issue, uh, concern after 2008 about the possible admittance of Ukraine and Georgia, uh, which spawned, of course, the, the war in Georgia and, you know, then contributed to increasing tension with Ukraine. The Maidan protests, which I think just sort of reinforced this idea that the West is coming for Ukraine, which led to the conflict in the Donbass and the annexation of Crimea. I, I also look at this on another track, which is you Wait, know, Derek, something Derek, you... that's a lot there. Maybe we should stick with okay. NATO All first. Right. Just All right. Let's uh, start and, with and, that. and Anatole, maybe if you were actually around for it, I don't think people realized that there was actually a debate about whether NATO should continue in the late eighties and early nineties. So maybe you could even just give like a precy of that and then go forward because I it's so naturalized to us, but it really wasn't always. No, indeed. By the way, I mean, on this score of the expansion of NATO, and especially, of course, expansion of NATO to Ukraine and Georgia, there is a pretty scathing critique of this and a record of uh, how, indeed, the United States and the West broke their word to, to Moscow about the expansion of NATO, but also some very severe warnings all the way back to the mid-90s about the hostility this was causing in Russia, the determination, uh, first of the Yeltsin, then of the Putin governments, to prevent at all costs NATO membership for Ukraine. You know who wrote this? The present head of the CIA, William Burns, in his memoir. 
Friend of the pot channel. Absolutely. It's yeah. it's all there. And he was in the room when the promise was given. And he actually quotes his memos, first on the policy planning staff in the 90s, then as ambassador to Moscow. Uh, his memos saying, look, this isn't just about Putin, the uh, uh, and indeed before Putin, uh, the entire Russian establishment and most ordinary Russians oppose bitterly NATO expansion, and most especially to Ukraine. So, I mean, yes. And he quotes his predecessor, who he greatly admired, George Kennan, you know, the greatest US ambassador to Moscow, the architect of containment, who said in the 90s that the expansion of NATO was the most disastrous decision made by a US administration since the end of the Cold War. Yep, I mean, there was a, a feeling that NATO existed, you know, to resist Soviet communist expansionism. And with the Cold War over, it could disappear. Now, Nobody suggested, by the way, that the European Union should disappear or that the European Union should not expand to take in the countries of Eastern Europe when they were ready to do so. But, of course, the thing about that is that the European Union has a built-in, if you like, fail-safe mechanism, which is that countries have to at least appear to have made real progress, I mean, really solid progress towards democracy and honest, law-abiding free market before they can be admitted to the European Union. Whereas, of course, if you remember NATO during the Cold War, well, it contained quite a number of countries at different times, which could hardly be called democracies. So from the Russian point of view, you know, the America could simply expand NATO to any country on Russia's borders. But that debate was simply swept away. And those of us, you know, e even the most senior and the people who really should have been listened to, like Kennan, were, were simply swept aside from a mixture of domestic political advantage on the part of the Clinton administration and the absolute unwillingness of the Europeans to defend themselves, so they wanted America in there as well. And of course, hubris, the incredible arrogance of the West in the 90s, you know, coming out of the end of history mood that resulted from victory in the Cold War. So, so yes, I mean, then this is the phrase Burns uses in his memoir, uh, NATO expansion went on autopilot and went from countries where you had a pretty united will to join NATO, like Poland and the Czech Republic, and which NATO was, in principle, ready and able to defend, uh, and which Russia accepted. I mean, it didn't like it, but it never really pushed back against NATO membership for Central Europe or even the Baltic states, until you got to countries which NATO was never prepared to fight to defend, ever as it's made clear again this time, but which Russia was in the last resort determined to fight to prevent joining NATO. So, yeah, I mean, there was a kind of path dependency, to use an academic phrase. I, I want to ask just a little bit on that. Why do you think, I mean, we obviously have the arrogance and the Madeleine Albright quote about, you know, seeing further into the future and all of that. But why, why do you think this generation of policymakers was so willing to risk other nations' security for a program that they knew they were never going to implement? They were never going to allow Ukraine or Georgia. It's ridiculous to join NATO. What do you think it is about the American foreign policy establishment, or at least that generation, that led to such a disastrous foreign policy? I think it was that the Wolfowitz doctrine, if you remember this, that was set out by Paul Wolfowitz and Scooter Libby in a defence planning guidance document of 1992 for the administration of Bush the father, which was then leaked. I mean, that set out a programme 
of universal American global hegemony, not just in the world in general, but in every region of the world, and stated more or less explicitly that no other country in the world would have any influence beyond its own borders except that which the United States allowed and considered to be in the interests of the United States, and stated that every country in the world would be pressured, in effect compelled, to adopt what was then, by the way, it was called turbocharged version of American capitalism, you know, ultra free market capitalism, and American style democracy. Now, the fascinating thing is what comes of being a certain age, you see, I remember these things, that when that document was leaked, it, it was really widely criticized and mocked across uh, the, the American media and the wider, you know, commentariat as megalomaniac, you, you know, no, no country in history had ever aspired to something on this scale. But actually, after that, oh, and it was disowned by the Bush administration, by the way. But after that, it became, in effect, the standard operating procedure of every succeeding American administration. Clinton, Bush, Obama in a somewhat modified way, Trump in a slightly different way, harsher and more American nationalist, and now Biden. Of course, it was fed into by the, uh, the the arrogance which came out of the, the end of the Cold War, as fed into by all sorts of lobbies, you know, in, in, in Washington, uh, and of course by the East Europeans with their, you know, inherited hatred and fear of Russia. But I think also, I mean, if you look at the, if you'll forgive my saying so, the, the American liberal intelligentsia who might have been expected to have resisted this, you, you know, remembering if they did remember, you know, some of the attitudes which led to Vietnam and, you know, which was so much criticized at the time by the greatest American intellectuals, you know, Richard Hofstadter, C. Van Woodward. But there is something dreadfully appealing, of course, about this to certain sections of the liberal intelligentsia who, of course, believe in liberal internationalism, in the universal spread of democracy, the rule of law, and what they have come to call a rules-based order without understanding that for so much of the rest of the world, this is an order in which the United States and the West get to make the rules and then break them whenever <laughs> they, they wish, yeah. you know, as in Iraq and Libya and oh, you know, innumerable uh, other cases. I mean, look, look at the International Criminal Court today. American politicians are, are calling for Russia to be hauled before the International Criminal Court for war crimes. America, of course, has refused to recognize the court and has threatened explicitly that any country which does that or acquiesces in it against American soldiers will be subject automatically to intense American sanctions. You know, the, the rest of the world at that point just basically shrugs its shoulders and says, you know, oh, for God's sake. Yeah, and I would just point people very quickly to the book by Paul Chamberlain, The Cold War's Killing Fields. Uh, sorry, Derek. Indeed. Well, this actually takes me to my next question here in terms of what has framed Vladimir Putin's mindset as we, you know, head into the 21st century and get to the, uh, where we are now, which is something you alluded to a, a bit earlier, the concept or the, the notion that Russia is a great power, is still a great power. It has the military, certainly, of a great power, even if it, you know, has lost a lot of the other trappings of, of that status. But Putin views Russia as a great power. He observes some of the behavior you just talked about. And, I, you know, even uh, thinking about things like the NATO intervention in Kosovo in the late 90s, the Iraq war, Libya, kind of, you know, as these things are happening, the, the sense is that 
great powers, as you said, make up the rules as they go along. They break them when they want to. They do what they want. Um, I wonder how much you would say that's affected his mindset or influenced his mindset. And, and is he sort of making a demonstration here that like, look, I'm a great power. We're a great power. We can do what we want. That's why we've, you know, we've done this. Well, I should say, I've become a lot less confident talking about, you know, what, what's in Putin's mind and what Putin's character is since he launched this invasion, because I always put him down, and indeed he always was, a, a very cold-blooded, cautious operator, you know, who, a gambler perhaps, but a gambler who never gambled, except when he was damn sure he had, uh, you know, all the best cards in his hand. And, you know, whenever he went to war in the past, it, it was when he was convinced, and as it turned rightly, that not just the West wouldn't fight against him, but that, that he would be able to achieve his goals on the ground. So I think you're right. He has been both infuriated by Western behavior over the years. He's been infuriated by Western insults to himself and to Russia. I often quote, sorry, I've quoted it so often that my, my students used to more or less say, oh God, not that line again. Um, but um, John Maynard Keynes said of Clemenceau, the French prime minister at Versailles, that Clemenceau was an utterly cynical, disillusioned individual who had only one illusion, France. And I've said that about Putin, you know, extremely cynical, no doubt, very greedy, very corrupt. But it would be wrong. And I think this latest hideous gamble has illustrated this, that he identifies himself completely with Russia and sees Russia as and, and sees his duty in maintaining Russia as a great power in the world. And I think that's true of Putin's you know, inner circle as well. Uh, so, yes, I mean, Putin is a kind of imperial nationalist. Once again, not a very unfamiliar type in Washington in, in many ways. Uh, I suspect that if, um, as some of us might devoutly wish, that um, Putin and Victoria Newland were cast away on the same desert island, it might well be that they would get on surprisingly well, actually. Um, <laughs> that They see the world in very similar ways, I suspect, at heart. But, I mean, the other thing I think to note is that, and I think this is true, that especially since the beginning of the COVID pa pandemic, because, you know, the, the pictures of, of Putin's physical isolation, you know, even from his closest supporters, have become, I mean, frankly, somewhat ridiculous. And I would have thought in his case, humiliating, you know, 10 meters away from them so that he shouldn't run any risk of infection. And I, I think that uh, what we have been hearing about, you know, Putin's isolation from the wider Russian elites, including those who could have told him about the appalling economic risks he was running by invading Ukraine, uh, who could have told him that, you know, if he thought the Ukrainians were going to greet the Russian soldiers with flowers, he was being, you know, monstrously deceived and self-deceived. It does seem to me that he has now become cut off from a lot of sensible advice uh, and has surrounded himself with uh, people, not exactly sycophants because they're, you know, old friends and associates of his, uh, but who share all his beliefs and have excluded arguments and information which would contradict this. So one thing that I do want to ask you, because you're a specialist in Europe, and, and to be frank, we haven't focused that much on this podcast in Europe in general, is what 
post-91, post-89, wherever you want to date it, why did Europeans feel comfortable having the United States be responsible for so much of their defense? Um, they're richer countries. It's not 1949, you know, when NATO was founded. You know, they're quite rich. They're quite capable of, of funding their own defense. And it seems rather strange that they were so willing to sort of um, off, offload this responsibility. Uh, so I was wondering if you had any thoughts about that. It really goes back to the Second World War, I think. You know, on the one hand, a whole row of countries were obviously defeated and conquered by Germany. Sometimes they fought hard, but, you know, ineffectively. Sometimes they folded with, frankly, very little resistance. So on the one hand, that has given some of the Europeans, many of the Europeans, a, a bit like the Australians, really, a, a, a sense that they depend absolutely on having an outside great power to defend them. Uh, now, in the case of Germany, it's rather different because the Germans there, uh, they also deeply distrust themselves, which is the interesting German thing because of Nazism, because of the horrors of the German past. Uh, there is this deep aversion in Germany uh, to Germany becoming a military power again. And uh, Britain, forget Britain, you know, Britain, um, uh, you know, just identifies with the American empire because it, you know, America provides the silly hats and the feathers by which Britain can pretend to be a great power on the world stage. Uh, France, however, is an interesting case now, because after the end of the Cold War, you'd have thought that this was the real moment for a new de Gaulle, a Gaullist right. moment in which, you know, France would actually try to, um, take responsibility alongside Germany for European security. And just to be clear, de Gaulle was very skeptical of these sorts of American-led um, groups and to the degree where even the headquarters of NATO left France in the 1960s, Indeed. just to give a bit of a background. Sorry, mm -hmm. Anatole, please continue. No, sure. But then you see two things happened. The first was the Bosnian War and the utter, and I have to say as a European, shameful failure of the Europeans to prevent that, contain it, bring it to an end. Uh, especially, of course, after you had these grandiloquent speeches at the beginning, like this is the hour of Europe, and the Europeans did nothing. And there were, you know, within that, there were particularly disgraceful episodes, you know, like the Dutch standing aside at Srebrenica, while thousands of, of Muslims were led off to be slaughtered. And what that did, it was basically, it, it broke whatever nascent feeling there was in Europe, that Europe could guarantee its own security without America. Because, of course, in the end, it was America that ended the war by coming in, you know, with its air force on the side of the, the Croats. Now, of course, there's always been a certain willingness to push back. The French and Germans would not go along with the invasion of Iraq, for example. So, you know, there hasn't been complete subservience to the United States. Uh, but you see, the other thing that's happened with the French is that as Islamist revolts grow in Western Africa, and French client states begin to crumble. France's attempt to keep a sphere of influence in Western Africa now depends critically on US military support. It could not continue without US military support. The Europeans have done nothing, nothing significant to help the French there, despite certain promises. Uh, and so France knows very well that if it doesn't stay well in with America, America will pull the plug on France in West Africa. So all of these things have come together. And of course, residual fear of Russia until obviously this invasion in Western Europe, deep 
understandable, but nonetheless to a great extent irrational fear of Russia in Eastern Europe. So all of this has produced a, a mentality in Europe that you simply have to have uh, America still fully present on the European continent, because Europe cannot guarantee, uh, you know, not merely its own defense, but it can't, it can't guarantee the maintenance of stability in the Balkans. If America were not there to frighten the Serbs, uh, I'm convinced that we would be back in civil wars in the Balkans, and the Europeans would do nothing. Incidentally, if I could add a particularly cynical line on that, you know, now we're hearing so much about, you know, NATO strengthening itself, strengthening its resolve, you know, the Germans spending much more on their armed forces. Yes, but the glorious thing about this crisis for NATO is that NATO has no intention of fighting. It is a bit like the Cold War, actually. Russia has no intention of attacking NATO. And in any case, as we see from the frankly, you know, pretty pathetic performance of the Russian army in Ukraine, it couldn't do so if it wanted to. NATO, of course, has no intention of fighting to defend Ukraine. So in many ways, this is a perfect European exercise. You get to, you know, move troops around on a map. You have all these exercises, but no one is ever going to have to fight. Now, when the Europeans have been asked to fight, in Afghanistan, they performed pathetically. Uh, and in West Africa, they haven't performed at all. So you see, you wouldn't want to take all of this NATO resolve stuff uh, too seriously. In many ways, this is a paradise for NATO. Just one more question on on that before we return to the major conflict. So obviously the Germans just devoted much more of their GDP to defense. There were previous discussions in the 1960s about a type of intra-European multinational force. I think it was called literally the MNF, if I'm remembering correctly. So do you see this as engendering a type of new form of European collective security on one hand? And then on the other hand, what do you think this suggests about larger U.S commitments. Does it say anything useful about Taiwan? Um, there's been a lot of discussion within Taiwan itself. I'm not sure if it, it reflects what US or European policymakers are thinking. So yeah, those are my two questions. On Europe, my sense is that the Europeans will, will clutch America and NATO you know, as, as tightly as they possibly can. Now, I doubt that there will be a, any significant European autonomy. Uh, the only thing which could change that would be not, I think, in Europe, but once again in Africa. If you see the collapse of states in Western Africa and massively increased migration from there to Europe, because uh, as we see now, there is a very great difference between European attitudes to Ukrainian migrants and refugees and to Africans and Muslims. That might impel the Europeans to do something more, but I doubt it in the short term. Elsewhere, I, I don't know really, to be honest. The Chinese have approached this crisis very cautiously. There were those who, who said that China would take advantage of such a crisis in Europe to put increased pressure on Taiwan. They haven't actually done so. And the point is that you have these voices, but fortunately not very many of them, calling for a, a no-fly zone in Ukraine, which would imply going to war with Russia, and that would be war with Russia. But the Biden administration has turned that down. And they've even turned down the idea of Poland transferring fighters to Ukraine via America or via American bases. So America is not going to fight for Ukraine. But as far as Taiwan is concerned, you have the same ambiguity, whether America would fight 
or not fight for Taiwan. Of course, an additional complication there is that in East Asia, as in Europe, I mean, America has treaty obligations to defend Japan in the case of war. There is actually a, a defensive alliance with Japan. But what would Japan do if Taiwan was attacked? If America wanted to fight for Taiwan, would the Japanese fight as well? Or would they, in fact, become extremely scared that this would escalate to a point where China was lobbying nuclear missiles at American bases in Japan? So I think it's difficult to draw any direct lessons from what's happening in Europe now to East Asia. The only thing I would say is, perhaps not about Taiwan, but also, by the way, about you know the idea of an American alliance with India, which is, as with Georgia in 2008, as with Ukraine in 2014, as with Ukraine today, for God's sake, don't give people the idea that they are your ally and that you will fight to defend them if, in fact, you have no intention of doing so. You know, that is not just irresponsible, it's grossly immoral. And I think actually something the Indians do realize very well amidst all this talk of you know, partnership with the US is that if India gets into a border war with China in the Himalayas, America is not going to fight to save India. Oh, no. Well, yeah. No, indeed. <laughs> yeah, I'm skeptical America would even fight to save Taiwan, though I'm very, I, I know I'm in the minority position. Uh, well, let's with pray that one. it's never put to the test. Yeah. Let's come back to the situation in Ukraine. And well, let's, I want to address the question of whether this invasion was in the cards all along, which seems to be the sense of a lot of folks in the DC community that this was going to happen no matter what. I know you've written several pieces arguing that there were uh, places along the way where NATO or the United States, where Ukraine could have taken steps uh, to address Russian concerns and forestall this. The two big issues would be Ukrainian neutrality, some kind of a commitment that Ukraine would not join NATO. And the second, uh, I think, would be the implementation of uh, the Minsk agreement, you know, over the situation in the Donbass. Can you sort of talk about what a solution to these Russian concerns might have looked like that could have prevented this war? And was there a point where this did become inevitable? Was it November when this latest troop buildup started or at some point between November and when it actually began where it was too late to sort of intervene? Well, on the uh, argument now being made that uh, this is not really about NATO, this has nothing to do with NATO, I'm always reminded of a British young lady of negotiable virtue who had a, a, an affair with a conservative politician, a minister, in the early 1960s. And when the press asked her, Mandy Rice Davis was her name, to, said to her, but you are aware uh, that Lord, whatever his name was, uh, ha has denied having any relationship with you. She replied, well, he would say that, wouldn't he? <laughs> the point is that since these people, since these, uh, these freeds and others have you know, advocated from the start the expansion of NATO against the arguments of so many people that this was going to lead to disaster. Of course they have to say that NATO expansion isn't responsible for this, because that means that they are not responsible for this. And when did you last meet an American official uh, or politician, or, or a, oh, I have to say, or a European either, who would ever take personal responsibility for anything, right? That'll be the day. So the, the point is, of course they have to say that, but once again, uh, you know, if you read the, the memoir of the present director of the CIA, 
today, he says exactly the opposite. You know, going back to the beginning of NATO expansion in the 90s, uh, Russia is bitterly opposed. This will lead to crisis and there is, you know, a serious risk uh, of war. That's what he says. And he was the ambassador to Moscow. So, no. I mean, that's nonsense. Of course, it's about NATO expansion, but it's not, of course, only about that. It's about, um, you know, wider attempts to turn Ukraine into a Western ally. It's about the Russian language rights within Ukraine. As you say, it's, it's about a solution to the Donbass crisis and the failure of the West actually to try to implement the, the Minsk Accord. So it's, it's all these things together. As to the last moment that it could have been prevented, I think that was uh, in February when the um, meetings, you know, be between, um, Lavrov and Blinken um, failed to produce an agreement on a treaty of neutrality. And when the French and Germans failed to essentially repeat in a stronger form what they had said way back in 2008, which is that they would veto Ukrainian membership of NATO and any kind of stronger commitment to the Minsk process. There were other things that some of us advocated that the West could have done. The West could, for example, as, by the way, the Council of the Europe did, uh, it could have condemned uh, Ukraine's ethnic nationalist measures, you know, against the Russian language in Ukraine. It could have said that these were incompatible with future membership of NATO and the European Union. It could have committed itself to an implementation of the Minsk Accords on autonomy for the Donbass. It could have suggested, as Tom Graham, you know, also a leading former US diplomat, suggested that shall we perhaps talk about universal solutions to territorial disputes in Europe? In other words, Kosovo, as well as the Donbass and Crimea and the Georgian separatist republics based on local democracy. Now, that would have involved Russia, of course, having to recognize the independence of Kosovo. But in these other cases, it would have led, at least until the war, uh, to strong votes in favor of Russia. So there were many moves that the either the Biden administration or Europe or both could have taken, which I think would have been enough to ward off the, this invasion because it would have been extremely difficult if the West was actually prepared to offer a treaty of neutrality along the lines of the Austrian State Treaty of 1955, which after all was Russia's first demand. I don't see at that point how Russia could possibly have invaded Ukraine. Other elements of crisis would have remained, but look, you know, we, we've been in a crisis over this for eight years without this leading to the kind of terrible catastrophe that we see today. So, Anatole, what does this suggest about the Russian military capability? What does this suggest about how international actors might view the Russian military as a deterrent force in the future? Well, First of all, let's be absolutely clear. If the Russian army in two weeks couldn't take Kharkov, which is 20 miles from the Russian border, and Mariupol, uh, which is 15 miles from the line of control in the Donbass, then any idea of the Russian army attacking Warsaw or Riga, you know, let alone Berlin, is ludicrous. I mean, you know, the, the idea that NATO needs to strengthen itself against a Russian ground invasion is ridiculous, frankly. Now, there are other threats, obviously. Uh, there is the looming fear of nuclear war. There are cyber attacks, subversion, sure. But a conventional Russian invasion of 
Central Europe is 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 over. It's not going to happen. I mean, it, nobody can. No, no serious military analyst can can seriously believe that it could happen after this. As to what the Russians have done, well, I think they made a critical mistake uh, based on a gross underestimation of the Ukrainian willingness to resist. And in consequence, they deployed far too few troops. You know, even now they haven't actually, they deployed fewer than 200,000 troops, and they've still only moved four-fifths of those into the country. That is not enough to attack a country of more than 200,000 square miles from four different directions simultaneously. Do the math. So the, the result is that they haven't, except to some extent in the south, they haven't moved nearly as far as they obviously expected uh, on any front. Uh, then, I mean, the critical thing is they obviously expected to be able to take the major cities, at least in the east, very easily. They forgot the lessons of Grozny, and I covered the first Chechen war on the ground from both sides in the in the 1990s, which is that if the other side is willing to retreat into the cities and fight it out street by street, then unless you are prepared to suffer huge casualties among your own troops, the only way you're going to be able to deal with this is by blasting the cities to pieces, you know, with firepower. Not, not because you want to destroy the cities, or this is intentionally targeting civilians, but because it's the only way to blast the defenders out of their positions. The Russians should have learned that from Grozny, but clearly they totally deceived themselves about the nature of the Ukrainian resistance. But then there is a, a feature of this which is interesting because it could relate to Russia's political agenda, which is one of the reasons that they have moved so poorly and missed so many strategic opportunities in eastern Ukraine is they concentrated so many of their forces against Kiev. Now, was that an attempt, to, as has been suggested, to take Kiev very quickly, overthrow the Ukrainian government and replace it with Russian puppets? If so, that's failed totally from every point of view, military and political? Or was it an attempt to frighten the Ukrainian government into doing a, a deal on Russian terms, yielding to Russian conditions? If so, then that still appears to be the Russian uh, agenda. They're moving very slowly against Kiev. The, also, you know, Kiev is a colossal challenge. Kiev's a city, if you go the suburbs, of more than 3.5 million people. The Russians have perhaps 75,000 at most to attack it, that's not enough. And if they blast Kiev to pieces, having, you know, Russians consider it the mother of Russian cities and so forth and so on, that is going to look absolutely terrible in Russia itself, let alone the rest of the world. And meanwhile, as I say, they haven't even managed to capture the whole of the Donbass. You know, in two weeks, they haven't even managed to capture the whole of the Donbass. They haven't captured Kharkov, which, as I say, is 20 miles from the Russian border. So this, and uh, it would seem that they are facing severe logistical challenges, you, you know, that they've, they've frankly messed up their, their supplies and communications. So if there ever is a, a, a regime to replace Putin, I reckon some pretty high-level military heads are going to be rolling on the table as well after this. Given the military difficulties that you just outlined, given the Western response, which has been sanctions, some, some very heavy sanctions, I don't know if they were heavy enough to catch the Russians off guard or not, do you feel like they're 
aim, and I guess, I mean, I'm asking you to sort of assume that Vladimir Putin is not irrational, has not lost his mind, and is operating under some some kind of principle here. Do you feel like their goals are changing? I mean, was the intent to sort of carry out regime change and even occupy the whole country or large parts of the country in the beginning, and maybe they've kind of reduced their scope? Maybe the focus is on the South now. Do you get the sense that that there's a, been a change in plan here, given everything that's happened over the last two weeks? Well, I can't say. I honestly cannot say what the original plan was. All I can say is that if it was the plan to take over the whole of Ukraine, then that must have failed. You know, they, they obviously just can't can't do it. And if the plan was to occupy Russian-speaking areas of the East and South and gain support there, heard suggestions in Moscow, you know, for an offer to reunite Ukraine uh, on the basis of of federalism, you know, a federal constitution with autonomy for the Russian-speaking areas, then that looks as if it's failed as well, simply because, you know, you've got a row of ethnic Russian mayors and political leaders in eastern Ukraine, you know, rallying local people to resist the, the Russian invasion. So, as I say, I don't know what the original Russian plan was, but the Russians are going to have to settle for a lot less than that. Um, and indeed, I mean, if you look at the demands now, they are well short of that. On some points, we're not sure what exactly they are, but they're a lot less than that. So I think this takes us very naturally into my last question, which I would ask you to, assessing the situation, assessing where things stand now, and, and this is something you've written about you know, over the last couple of weeks, what to you is a sort of best case scenario in terms of a reasonable compromise, a reasonable outcome of a peace negotiation that could end this conflict, and then to take us out on our patented pessimistic note. Yeah, yeah we always um, end with something super depressing. What, so. are, what are your fears? <laughs> You've come to the right shop. <laughs> <laughs> what, are, what are your fears about what, what could happen next? Well, my fears about what will happen next is is that the Russian demands are, are too high. Uh, the Ukrainians themselves refuse to compromise. The Biden administration sets out not to use sanctions uh, to bring about a peace settlement, uh, but uh, to basically try to destroy Russia as a great power. Regime change, but also just to weaken Russia. Uh, and essentially indicates that it will not lift sanctions, even if there is a peace settlement. You know, you're hearing voices like that in in America and in Britain, which of course destroys the greatest incentive for Russia to reach a peace settlement. Um, sure. And the and, war essentially. Well, I, can I actually get your answer to the the question of arming Ukraine as well, and how that can play into extending? I mean, the, the the downsides. I understand the emotional sort of appeal of sending weapons to the the Ukrainians, but fueling a potential insurgency, extending, expanding the conflict. Do you uh, do you, does that concern you? The possibility that the weapons influx could actually make things worse, in a sense. Well, not if they were linked to a U.S. peace plan, a compromise peace. In that case, clearly, you you impose economic sanctions, quite rightly, by the way, I totally support that, on Russia, and you threaten Russia, look, if you don't agree to these conditions, then, you know, we will go on arming the Ukrainians. But you've got to have 
conditions that there is a chance of the Russians accepting. I mean, that there has to be a compromise involved. Because after all, yes, I mean, Russia has done much less well than it expected, but it is well on the way to controlling, for example, the whole of the Black Sea coast of Ukraine, which would, if the Russians held this, it would do appalling long-term economic damage to Ukraine. The other thing is that, you know, there is now talk about if Ukraine does lose large amounts of territory, that America should support a guerrilla war. Uh, I think that we have to really remember the lessons of the Cold War there, because in so many insurgencies, the people who have come to the fore have been the extremists. You know, that was true of Afghanistan in the 80s, which I covered as a journalist, because frankly, they tend to be the toughest fighters. You know, uh, by the way, the British during the Second World War supported the communists in Europe, uh, communist guerrillas, because they were the toughest fighters. Uh, whereas so many of the British guerrillas were basically sitting around in Cairo, you know, drinking tea and beer. The problem is that in Ukraine, that would be the extreme ethnic nationalists that we were talking about. Now, that risks a guerrilla war in Ukraine armed by the United States becoming an ethnic civil war because these people would target ethnic Russians and Russian speakers within Ukraine. That, I think, is the one thing that could actually save Russia's position in eastern and southern Ukraine because the people there might be forced into the arms of Russia for fear of you know, people who they know very well hate not just Russia, but Russians. Uh, and obviously, you know, the, the other thing about a guerrilla war is that it inevitably overlaps with terrorism and involves appalling human rights abuses on both sides. We have some reason to remember that, of course, do we not, from recent decades. So the point is that, of course, the US should give certain kinds of support to Ukraine, but it must be linked to a viable peace process. Uh, by the way, the other thing is, listen to the World Food Programme on the subject of the implications of this war and Western sanctions for global food prices, the risk of starvation in some parts of the world, and deep political instability. Look at the threat of widespread economic collapse as a result of energy shocks. Of course, this is doing terrible damage to Russia, but we must not ignore the damage that it will do to the world economy and the West as well. Well, on that happy note... <laughs> Anatole, thank you so much for joining us. We really, really appreciate it. And I, I hope to have you back soon. And everyone check out his work at the Quincy Institute and everywhere you might find foreign policy analysis. Thank you so much. Thank you.